0: All right, well, good evening. It's good to be back here again and be with you the second evening of Summer Bible School here at Weavertown, the congregation here. And um, so just a few comments here up front. Um, I felt I was maybe unduly hard on certain people last evening on some of the things I said about the way the Anabaptists have messages and and all of that. Um, I wasn't referring to anybody here, but maybe more in the, the area of overseas missions and things like that, where I think our messages may be kind of mixed and um, not, not the way they should be. In fact, I appreciate what's shared here. I think the pastors do a wonderful job of preparation and study and bring good, meaningful sermons. Uh, I just, I'm just going to say this. There was, we were blessed at this congregation recently to be taught on spiritual gifts. And I can honestly say as I sat and listened to Dave uh, delineate on some of the characteristics that are associated to certain gifts, I think I understood myself maybe for the first time ever. And I just want you to know I appreciate what goes, what's said here and I wasn't being hard on anybody. I felt some of the things were harsh I had said in regards to the uh, the teaching that goes on in the Anabaptist circles and I'm sorry if I hurt anybody's feelings. So the um, the subject that I have chosen here for this these three days I had uh, titled the... Um, the truth and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and broke it into three sessions. Last evening, we had titled it, A Missionary's Challenge. And this evening, I want to talk in a completely different direction, and talk about the gospel of Jesus in comparison to the three other major world religions. Some of you may not appreciate or enjoy this this kind of um, material. Uh, I love it, I'm fascinated by studying things like this, and maybe I can get a few people excited about this as well and make this something that's worth talking about in these circles. So we want to talk this evening about the gospel of Jesus Christ, its truth and its beauty, and then in comparison to the three other major world religions um, that we deal with, I'll spend more time on the first one, less on the last two, because the first one uh, we're more familiar with and we interact with more of those people. I have a prologue here, about a two-paragraph prologue that will maybe set the stage for us and then we'll dive into some material. So um, maybe about three or four minutes just of reading in the opening thesis or prologue. And here is what I have written. For the vast majority of people who have grown up in Christian homes and Christian communities, the dual concepts of God's existence and God as creator have never been in question. These doctrines are ingrained into young minds by loving parents dedicated to teaching their children the truth about God, his creation, and his ways. As a result, vibrant Christian communities have sprung up where one can easily see the love of Christ in motion. Here we see homes, schools, and entire communities exemplifying, exemplifying true faith in God as Christians live out deeply rooted convictions in both word and deed. This is the upside. This is the positive. There is, however, a downside to believing something solely on a prescriptive basis. And what I mean by that is customs and beliefs that are prescribed by parents, church, and culture. So there's a downside to believing something solely on a prescriptive basis rather than searching out a belief for oneself. Being introduced to God at a young age is wonderful and has produced many a stellar Christian. However, in isolation, it can leave a person ill-equipped to present and defend his faith in God to those of another faith. There are millions of people in this world who weren't raised in Christian homes and communities. There are also millions quite committed to religions extremely different to the Christian faith. For a Christian to hoist the Bible and declare that God exists because the Bible says so may work very well within a protected Christian community, but will most likely get that same Christian laughed out of every secular institution, mosque, and temple in this world. So how do you and I I intend to verbally prove and defend God's existence and to share the gospel truth to this kind of person. And I know and you know as well as I do that Christian love is probably our most important witness. Our, our love and kindness to those of another faith is one of our strongest witnesses. But I'm going to not go in that direction this evening, but talk mostly how do we defend our belief with words and thinking and thoughts like that? How do we defend our belief over and against those of different faiths? Um, in the realm of thought or using words and arguments. Now, just for a clarification, I probably hold um, to the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy as strong as any person in here. I, I don't question the Bible's authenticity, its truth, and any of that. It's inspired. It's inerrant. And I accept that wholeheartedly. But i like to know why I hold to those views. I don't just want to accept it because I was told to. Let me just read this clarification. The age-old question of whether the Bible is true until proven false or false unless proven true is clearly in view here. As one committed to the Christian faith, I hold to the first premise, namely that the Bible is true unless proven false, thereby placing the burden of proof onto the unbeliever. This means that raising a Bible and declaring that God exists because the Bible says so is a valid saying to me, for after all, by what higher authority... Can the Bible be evaluated and judged? Although many a skeptic, listen, I want you to get to this last paragraph. This is going to tie into what Chris was saying. Although many a skeptic will declare that the New Testament, the life of Jesus, they'll declare this as false until proven true by external and extra-biblical sources that validate the scriptures, the truth is the most reliable source material from antiquity in regards to the historicity of first-century Palestine, including the life of Jesus, is the New Testament. And that's actually what measures all the rest of history from that era. It's the New Testament is the most authoritative document we have from first century Palestine. So how do we prove our faith or interact with people of different beliefs to us? The current world population stands at about 7.9 billion people strong. About 7.9 billion people alive across the globe currently. Uh, estimated one-third are Christian, and we'll leave aside whether they're nominal or bloodwashed Christians, but one-third Christian. About one-fourth are Muslim, and there's about one billion Hindus, and they're concentrated mostly in the land of India, 530 million Buddhists. After that, you have Sikhism, Jainism, Judaism, and a lot of other smaller religions. Many of their tenets are actually very similar. So the three major religions after Christianity are Islam, Hindu, and Buddhist, if I'm not mistaken. So I'd like to examine the three major world religions from three vantage points. we we'll look at all three of them from three different vantage points. We'll look at them from an historical perspective and from what I'm going to call a philosophical. I'll explain that term in a minute. And the last one I struggled with, but I called it a theological perspective, but rather I think it's more of a felt need. How does this religion minister to the, the, the heart cry of humans? Does it, does it meet my needs, my spiritual hungers? How does it minister on, on a felt need, a day-to-day basis? And it has to be ministered from God, not just some made up, but it has to be theological. So number one, histor- uh, historical, can they be proven through history? Secondly, uh, philosophical, do they bear logic? And thirdly, do they provide comfort to our soul? Um, In the early years of the 1800s, just after the French Revolution, there was a famous French war general by the name of Napoleon. Does that ring a bell? The French war general by the name of Napoleon, who was just wreaking havoc throughout Europe He had conquered most of the countries and the lands in Europe. And there was one final, I guess you call it the bastion of unconquered strength in Europe. And that was the land of the country of England. In 1815, Napoleon set his his sights on England to conquer this last bastion of strength. So the English general who was um, appointed to go and fight Napoleon was a, a general by the name of Wellington, the Duke of Wellington. And he took his army from England and marched towards Napoleon, and they met at a place called Waterloo, which is present day Belgium. And a fierce battle ensued between the two armies. And the people back in England had no idea what was happening in the battle until um, one day, on a rocky coastline in England, there was a kind of protected bay with rocky mountainous uh, trees, mountains on the sides. And beyond that was the ocean. They seen the silhouette of an enormous uh, man of war, a British warship out in the ocean, in and out of the fog. They could see it coming closer to land. And when the warship came fairly close to the people on shore, they seen it was flashing a message with Morse code and lights. And as they watched, the message flashed, and it said, Wellington defeated. And then the fog rolled in from the mountains. The ship was obscured and they couldn't see it anymore. The people of England went back and sat in their homes in absolute despair, um, dreading the thought of being taken over by the French by a ruthless general like Napoleon. Just hold that that thought for a minute. When we talk about other religions and worldviews, I think that God has left himself a witness within every other faith in this world. He does never leave himself without a witness, but there's something about himself that's hidden and tucked inside. But God never lets a person believe in something that's false without a specter of doubt. There's just a specter of doubt. What happened when the ship sent the signal into the coastline in England is the fog had ruled in before the message was fully read. What it actually said was Wellington defeated the enemy. That was the full message. It makes you think of the disciples of Jesus the day he was crucified. They, too, didn't understand the full message. So the full message, Wellington defeated the enemy. And I think that even though other religions may have hints of God, because you see, in, in other beliefs, you have all of these things. You have this quest for piety, longing for cleansing and forgiveness. Most of them are in search of some type of a savior. There's this, God has has tucked a little bit of himself inside each of these religions, but I don't think that the full message can ever be understood until the message is understood in the person of Jesus Christ. All right, uh, we're going to look at three major world religions from three perspectives. And uh, let's just look at this word philosophical first so we don't confuse ourselves. Um, It has two definitions. The first definition for philosophical is to be lackadaisical or careless, have a careless attitude. A person may say, well, you know, my $3,000 dog ran away, but oh well, it may come back one day. Just be lackadaisical and philosophical. The second definition, the one we're using tonight, is pertaining to the realm of thought in contrast to the realm of physics. It's the realm of thought, thinking. Some things we can understand and figure out just by thinking. Uh, no tangible evidence is needed, no historical proof. It's just we do it up here. If I were to tell you that I can go to that wall anytime I want and draw for you a perfectly square circle, you immediately know it's not true. It's philosophical. It, it, it doesn't bear logic. It's self-defeating. The statement that there's no such thing as absolute truth assumes that that statement is absolutely true. It's self-defeating. It's philosophical. So there's lots of things that we can understand and figure out just in the realm of thought. Some statements appear to be self-defeating, but they need to be given the benefit of an explanation. Um, we hear statements sometimes that were sermons and we end up thinking, okay, so he said, we're not saved by works, but if we don't have works, we're not saved. And it it sounds confusing, but it should be given the benefit of an explanation and a person can unpack that and it makes sense. Ali Dashti, who was a, a brilliant Islamic scholar, wrote a book that he entitled 23 Years, The Life of Prophet Muhammad. He was actually a devout Muslim. And he wrote a book, a scathing critique of, of Islam and the Prophet. He wanted the book to be released uh, posthumously after he was gone because he knew he'd be in trouble. But the book was released or it was slipped to a printer somehow while he was alive. And he disappeared. He's gone. Uh, no one knows where he is. We can only imagine what happened to him. In the book, uh, 23 years, he wrote this about the Quran. He was a devout Muslim. In order for the Quran to make sense, the Quran is Islam's holy book, in order for the Quran to make sense, one would have to dismantle and then reconstruct all the laws of logic and grammar. So does it make sense? I have a feeling I'm on YouTube and I'm, There's going to be a bounty on my head by tomorrow. So let's look at Islam from an historical perspective. Islam was founded around the year 600 AD, after Christianity, after death, by a man called Muhammad. Most of you know this. At 25 years old, he married a wealthy widow who was 40 years old at that time. Her name was Khadijah. When he was 40 years old, he was alone in a cave when he heard voices. He believed they were the voice of the devil and went back terrified to his wife until she reassured him it was the voice of a god and told him to go back and hear the voice again. And that began the revelation of the Quran. It's widely believed and even accepted by Muslim scholars that Muhammad was actually illiterate and used to scribe. So let's look at some of the uh, historical problems that Islam has in comparison to Christianity. Islam was propagated by the sword. In other words, it was enforced upon people across lands. And if you didn't convert, they often killed you. Christianity, by contrast, spread like an uncontrollable fire. It couldn't be contained. It couldn't be contained and stopped. If you read some of the atrocities committed by Muhammad and his soldiers, there's one incident in a place, I think it's in modern-day Medina, uh, against the Jewish group called the Karazis, where 700 Jews refused to convert to Islam and subsequently dug their own grave and were killed. It was propagated by the sword, whereas Christianity spread like uncontrollable fire. Um, Islam claims to be the fastest growing religion in the world, but I'll say it's probably because it's the fastest growing enforced religion in the world. If you're born in, in Malaysia, or Indonesia, you have to be a Muslim. There's not even the freedom to convert without going to a tribunal, and you won't be given the, the freedom to convert. So it's the fastest growing enforced religion in the world. There's no freedom to disbelieve. The second historical problem that Islam has, well, think about it like this there was one commonality that all of the major people groups had in the era that Islam was born. You had the Romans, the Greeks, the Christians, the Jews, all had one thing in common, even some of the barbarians. What was it that they all had in common? They all had religious identity, all of them, had their own set of gods and their own set of religions and so forth. Who was the one people group that didn't have religious identity? The Arabs. The Arabs. Do you think that bothered them? Of course it bothered them. So that's one uh, historical problem that they have. They were the only people group in that era with no religious identity. They were a people in quest of a God. The God of the Bible is a God in quest of people. In fact, the Bible says he's a God who pursues sinners and that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Look at the enormous contrast between the the beginnings of Christianity and Islam. The third historical problem that they have is that they're the only historians of that era. And they, they have writings from that time. They're the only historians of that era who deny that Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross. They do not accept that Jesus died on a cross. In fact, in Surah 4, 157, that would be like chapter 4, 157 of their book. They say this, and for their saying, talking about the Jews, the Muslims talking about the Jews, for their saying, indeed, we have killed the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah, and they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but another was made to resemble him there, and indeed, those who differ over it are in doubt about it. They have no knowledge of it except the following of assumption, and they did not kill him for certain." They're the only historians from that era who deny that Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross. The Greek historians, the Roman historians, the Jewish historians, the Christian historians, they all agree, writing independently, that Jesus died on a cross. So historically, historically, the Quran is false. It's false. The next problem that they have with with historical going to run out of time really fast, is the the fallacy of an abrogation. An abrogation simply means a later and a fuller revelation. In other words, we knew something here, but something came along later and overtook that knowledge. So it's a later and a fuller revelation, an abrogation. Um, They make quite a few false assumptions using the term abrogation. The Quran, their holy book, allegedly abrogated the Bible. But there's an enormous problem, because in Revelation 22, it says that anybody who adds to or takes away from this book, all the curses shall be on him. So how do you abrogate something like that without violating? You can't do it. You can't say you have a better, or fuller revelation if you're in direct, absolute, abject denial of what you're taking over. So the problem of abrogation um, is something they have to deal with. Muhammad wrote throughout his lifetime, the prophet Muhammad, His later writings were an abrogation to his first. In fact, the things he wrote last in his life were in abject opposition to what he wrote first, in complete distinction, opposite. But what's fascinating, his, his writings changed most times in order to suit his personal whims. When his first wife passed away, he took on 12 new ones and changed the writing in the Quran because prior, only one wife was permitted. When he needed 12, the Quran was changed to accommodate that. Most of his writings, his later writings, were written to satisfy an indulgence to his own personal desires, and so on. Um, it's, It's said, and I think it's accepted, that when he needed to change the Quran, it took a trip to the cave, a voice from Allah, and the Quran was rewritten. Compare that to the originality of the Bible, where you have 66 books, probably about 40 authors, depending on Hebrews, um, written from three different continents over the span of 1,500 years. Many authors didn't even know each other. And yet when it's compiled, it's a beautiful, perfect story from Genesis the whole way through Revelation, written by men who didn't even know each other over 1,500 years. It's unbelievable just the difference in the two books and their beginnings the final problem that islam has from history is that the conception or the birth of islam was punctuated with exactly it was punctuated with exactly how many miracles anyone know the answer zero there were none there were none they say that the quran their holy book is their miracle it, they, in fact, they call it a perfect book. I don't think it's perfect. I think it's self-referencing. In other words, the Quran is true because Muhammad says it, says it is, and Muhammad is right because the Quran says he is. So it's just a self-referencing book. It doesn't allow for any kind of external critique. In fact, if you do, if you do that, you'll go where Ali Dashti did. The other problem is it can't be a perfect book. It has the problem of its own abrogation if his first writings conflict his second writings, at which point was it perfect? It's a fallacy. It's an absolute fallacy. It can't be a perfect book because it it, uh, actually contradicts itself. This became a problem for the Islamic faith uh, years later, was the fact that their beginning had no miracles attached to it. And so in one of the later hadith, you'll find a story of um, Muhammad needing to be from Medina to Jerusalem for a meeting with a person, and he went there on a flying donkey. That was added in later. The only problem is there was no eyewitness except for for Muhammad and the donkey. And it actually says that in the Quran. Compare that to the four Gospels where you have at least 36 miracles, earth-shattering, nature-defying miracles performed by Jesus. And John says books couldn't even contain the things, the signs and the wonders accomplished by Jesus in three short years of ministry. I think it's safe to say that Islam was invented by a man. Christianity was instituted by God. So now we'll move to the what I'm going to call the philosophical problems with Islam. With Islam. Or well, we can just know by thinking that it can't be true, just in the realm of thought. I think I've probably talked about some of this here before, but I'll go through it again. I remember talking about this in a certain sermon here in something about creation. So the triune God of the Bible versus a monad God of the Quran. The God of the Bible is a trinity where it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's one essence, one substance, one being, but three personalities and three roles within the triune God. The Quran clearly, clearly states Allah as a monad, as a one soul indivisible being. He's just one. And they're very careful with that. They do not accept any kind of trinity. Their God is one soul indivisible being. Both the Bible would attribute creation to God. In Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, God created. In the Quran, in, in uh, Surah 25.2 and 25.59, it, it talks clearly that Allah is creator, has created all things and placed order within his creation. But the problem is this. Before creation, we have to think a little bit. Before creation, um, God of the Bible was perfectly complete in and of himself. He had relationship, community, there was fellowship. Everything he needed for a meaningful existence was right there. He only created because he chose to, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. So he had a perfect meaningful existence. He had fellowship, relationship, community, all of those things. But Allah was completely alone before creation. So he had more or less a meaningless existence. There was no community, no conversation, no relationship. There was nothing. His his existence was meaningless until he created. And um, he created humans, and that gave him, I guess, in some sense, relationship and and fellowship and all of that. But since he has to rely on humans, which are fallible, which are imperfect, that leaves him as a still imperfect being. He's not perfect in and of himself. He relies on fallible humanity for his completion and his perfection, whereas the God of the Bible was perfect and whole in and of himself in the Trinity. Another thing that's fascinating is the Quran, although they insist that Allah is monad, he is one indivisible being. The Quran often refers to Allah in the plural, which is strange. It's just a contradiction. All right, the next one is um, what I'm going to call the non-similarities of Allah, the non-similarities. In 2011, a debate between a brilliant Islamic scholar, Abdullah Kunti, and a Christian apologist, James White, took place in Sydney, Australia. The debate was entitled, Can God Become a Man?, And that's actually a really good thing to watch if you want to watch something interesting. Um, I would encourage you to go to YouTube and watch that. Between Abdullah Kundi and James White, can God become a man? In the beginning of the the debate, Kundi kept referring or kept quoting the Quran and kept saying, there is nothing similar to his similarities, speaking of Allah. There's nothing like him, nothing anywhere can relate to Allah. What's fascinating is that Kundi had just mentioned a lot of Allah's attributes as though he knows a lot about Allah. How did he learn it? If there's nothing similar, what method did Allah use to transfer this information to humans? There's nothing on his equal or level or even similar to his similarities. That actually erases all kinds of conversation and language and communication. It has to. And if you push the problem back or if you say that, he communicated to uh, Muhammad. And now we know what Allah was thinking because he talked through the prophet. It just pushes the problem back. It doesn't answer the question. If there's nothing similar to Allah, how do we know that? How did we learn that? How did he communicate that? Because there's no language if there's nothing similar. Compare that to the God of the Bible, where the Christian worldview, on the other hand, has no dilemma. Since, as we know, God became flesh and dwelt among us the incarnation of Jesus, and we beheld him full of grace and truth, says the scripture. So there's no issue for the Christian to understand and to hear what God is saying. I'll get about halfway through. I'm sorry. I thought I'd go through faster, but I'll just do one more, and then maybe I can finish up another time. And maybe this doesn't interest too many people here either, but I I find it extremely fascinating studying some of these things and just underscoring again the truth in the gospel of Jesus and the truth of the Christian Bible. So the problem with a corrupted text, this is another philosophical problem that Islam has to deal with and is not able to. So Islam lends credence to both the Old and the New New Testament as once valid and authoritative books. It would acknowledge that both the Old and the New Testament were at one time valid and authoritative. It refers to the Torah, the books of Moses, as the Torah, the writings, which we would call the Psalms and um, Ecclesiastes and so forth, it refers to as the Zabor, and the New Testament, the Ingeal. And it, it acknowledges that all three of these were valid and authoritative at one time, But it also claims that since the original autographs are lost, in other words, we don't have the original papers the apostles wrote on and the first Bible writers wrote on. It's all been disintegrated. We don't have the original. We have copies of copies of copies of copies. And we have about 5,000 manuscripts just in Greek alone on New Testament, handwritten manuscripts, but we don't have the original. So the... The Muslim will tell you that since we don't have the original autographs, we only have copies of copies, and in the 5,000 copies of New Testament manuscripts, there's over 400,000 variations, textual variations, it's something the Christian has to grapple with. They say since the original is lost, what we have is corrupt. It's been corrupted and changed, and the Quran must overtake that. It must abrogate that and take it over. But what's the problem with saying something is corrupt or imperfect? What's the philosophical problem with that claim? You have to have, some you have, to have the original to prove something as being non-original. It's, it's like child's play. You have to have the original. You can't say something imperfect unless you have a good idea or have access to the perfect. So for them to claim that our writings are corrupted means they have access to the uncorrupted. They have to have, but they don't. They just like to say it's corrupted. So some of these things can be turned in their head pretty fast. Um, let me just, one thought there. C.S. Lewis would, I think, put this as straightforward as anybody. He says a man cannot call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight one. I guess I'll have to finish maybe another day or another time. I, have, I got about halfway through, and I apologize for that. Um, so, all right. I was going to finish better than that, but the time's up. So let's, let's pray together, and we'll be dismissed, and go join our children. Thank you for listening. Our dear Heavenly Father, we're grateful, and we bless you this evening. We thank you for all of the things you've imparted to us, and we're grateful that we have the Scripture, and we trust it with our whole heart. Lord, we're also thankful that there's ways to test and measure for those of us with analytical minds who like to know why we believe that you've also made ways for that as well. And uh, we just especially bless you and your word this evening and your revelation to us through Jesus Christ, his incarnation. We're thankful that you became human, that we can relate to you freely and have an open, loving relationship with the God who loves us. And we're thankful also, Lord, that the Bible brings comfort and peace and the assurance of salvation whereas other religions, I don't think, have any inkling of what that feels like. We stand in that this evening. We're washed in your blood. We're thankful. We're grateful. We love you and praise you and wish to serve you in newer and better ways tomorrow. In Christ's name, amen.